Jamar talks about, you know, he goes over the the data and stuff, and he points out that you know what, what we're taught in science is not necessarily what's really going on, you know. So he talks about, and that's why I like I like the idea that because I think that you kind of gravitate toward the scientific explanation, Stephen Hawking, you know, all these guys. Okay, maybe you know, oh yeah, these stars and and we're you know four billion years old and stuff. But even that's a fiction because the idea is sensation perception response awareness even if your sensation perceptions are showing you that that might not necessarily be what it is but then there's these other people who say no you know the they, they look more like the hindu idea and they say no the, the world didn't humans didn't start off you know then it started off you know maybe even further back than that or, or maybe and, and there really was a great flood and there really was all this stuff and they showed the scientific ex evidence that shows all that and what i'm saying is both are true because in the, the universe is creative and it's playing with you and you think that there's one truth, but it's a creative process, and it's going to give you evidence for both truths. Because, you know, any thoughts? Well, that's possible. I I doubt it, but it's possible. All right, but you ready? Yeah. And, and but I know, especially you see, you say you doubt it, but I know with the quadrant stuff, there's a supernatural thing going on. I know, I see it. So you ready? Archaeological Institute, who is in charge of the Gobekli Tepe excavation, believes its creators came from far distant places. The various strata at the site suggest several millennia of work, perhaps reaching back to the Mesolithic period. So the title of this book is Our Occulted History, Do the Global Elite Conceal Ancient Aliens? Right, right. But you see, what I'm saying is, you could say, now he's looking at it through the perspective of aliens, but you know, you could also look at that as angels. Or you could look at that as other divine beings, extra dimensional, even time travelers and stuff. But the point is, and even in the quadrant stuff, the point is even they are a figment of imagination. Even they are a product of the quadrant matrix. So, but, but what this guy's pointing out is that the that the mainstream scientists are, are missing things and are intentionally keeping things out. Because they know that their theories aren't completely coherent. And... And what the quadrant stuff shows is, yes, their theories aren't coherent. You know, they, they say it's because, you know, the, the, the solar system came about this through these random processes. I show, no, it's, it came that way because it's, it's fitting the quadrant pattern. So it might really go back to that God created it all or you, the quadrant created it all. It's just, a, it's just a quadrant reflection. But he's looking at it even rationally still, but he's saying it's aliens. You know, that, that maybe the moon was, you know, there's evidence that the moon is hollow. So the aliens maybe set it up that way. It's really just a satellite. And, and you know, the phobi satellite asteroid, that's just really a satellite. And, you know, and, and that's, he, he looks at it through, it's kind of rational, but it's also a little bit supernatural, but mine is completely supernatural. Even the aliens, even us, it's all just a, a kind of a projection, but any thoughts? Mm, no, then it's possible and I doubt it. Perhaps reaching back to the Mesolithic period. Considering that only about 5% of the Gobekli Tepe's total area has been excavated, Schmidt said the dig might well continue for another 50 years and still bear... Well, you might want to check out this book. I could hopefully find it, send it to you, but Jim Mars, Our Occulted History, but... For another... Schmidt... But this, I'm just showing you a part, um, part the, from the middle of it, of this book, but there's the beginning, you'd have to check it all out. ...has total area has been excavated. Schmidt said the dig might well continue for another 50 years and still barely scratch the surface. British journalist Sean Thomas, who visited the site, noted that early Neolithic hunter-gatherers could have built something like Gobekli is world-changing. Hitherto, it was presumed that agriculture... So a lot of people think that it's usually the right-wingers who kind of question science, and the scientists tend to be left-wingers and stuff. But now my point is, yeah, that, that could be the case. But again, your beliefs create reality in a way in the quadrant model. Beliefs and reality, reality creates beliefs, and, but, but the idea is, maybe they're both right, and maybe they're both wrong. You know, maybe reality's it's it's it conforms and it's creative and it plays to your consciousness and, and, and both you know maybe there's two strands there's multiple strands there's, you know any thoughts no hitherto it was presumed that agriculture necessarily preceded civilization and that complex art society and architecture depended on the reliable food supplies derived from farming Gobekli Tepe shows that the old hunter-gatherer life at least in this region of Turkey was far more advanced than was ever conceived but why would so-called primitive people use so much time and energy to construct something like Gobekli Tepe and then bury it? After finding human bones in portions of the complex, Schmidt opined, Gobekli Tepe is not a house or a domestic building. 
evidence of any domestic use is entirely lacking. No remains of settled human habitation have been found nearby. That leaves one purpose, religion. Gobekli Tepe is the oldest temple in the world, and it isn't just a temple. I think it is probably a funerary complex. Schmidt viewed the site as a what place kind of veneration and perhaps communication with supernatural entities or domains. A funerary complex. A what? Funerary. But also, like, if you look at Gobekli Tepe, there's a... There's I don't a, know that... I don't know that word. Funerary. Do you know that word? Funeral, for funerals. But if you look at Gobekli Tepe, there's a four-part structure. There's quadrant structures in it. You look at the, the Olmec stuff. It, there, there's 16 heads that they found in a 4x4. Four four, and there's four sites that they found them in. And it's always the quadrant pattern. So there is something supernatural going on. You know, it, it's not just that. It's, it's like, you know, even the, the continents. There's the four continents. Japan has four main islands. Hawaii has many islands, but there's, there are four main ones that the, that the chiefs. There are four main chiefs before the Europeans came and they worked around the four main islands. And it's like, but there's, there's a supernatural quadrant thing going on. And, you know, there's islands that are shaped as the, as a cross, as a swastika. You know, there's, there's this island that's shaped as the ohm and they, and the ohm is a fourfold sound, but it's just like, it's, it's not rational, but any thoughts? Supernatural entities or domains. Schmidt's interpretation has been challenged in late 2011. In an article published by Current Anthropology, archaeologist Ted Banning argued that based on evidence of daily food preparation and flint working, the structures at Gobekli Tepe were living quarters for a large population. Termed by some the Turkish Stonehenge, the Gobekli Tepe complex predates its more famous British namesake by 7,000 years. Hassan Karabaluk, associate curator of the nearby Urfa Museum, has called Gobekli Tepe one of the most important monuments in the world. Some have even claimed the site may have been the basis for the Bible's Garden of Eden. One factor leading to this belief is the number of pillars there covered with elaborate animal figure reliefs. Archaeologists also have found a statue of a human and sculptures of a vulture's head and a boar. Reptiles and vultures are commonly depicted. Most of these carvings are found on the older pillars. As in Egypt, the older columns at Gobekli Tepe are oddly more elaborate and finely detailed than the later ones, evincing a deterioration of the culture. After visiting Gobekli Tepe in 2008, Andrew Curry, a reporter for Smithsonian Magazine, wrote, Predating Stonehenge by 6,000 years, Turkey's stunning Gobekli Tepe upends the conventional view of the rise of civilization. What was so important to these early people that they gathered to build and bury the stone rings? The gulf that separates us from Gobekli Tepe's builders is almost unimaginable. Indeed, though I stood among the looming megaliths eager to take in their meaning, they didn't speak to me. They were utterly foreign, placed there by people who saw the world in a way I will never comprehend. There are no sources to explain what the symbols might mean. Schmidt agrees. We are 6,000 years before the invention of writing here. A series of complete circles have been located, buried within the Gobekli Tepe complex, reminiscent of reports by Michael Tellinger of the stone circles in South Africa. As we walk around the recently excavated pillars, the site seems at once familiar and exotic. I have seen stone circles before, but none like these, commented Sandra Scam, a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. She added, Scholars thought that the earliest monumental architecture was possible only after agriculture provided Neolithic people with food surpluses, freeing them from a constant focus on day-to-day -day survival. A site of unbelievable artistry and intricate detail, Gobekli Tepe has turned this theory on its head. British author and explorer Andrew Collins stated... There is no obvious explanation for a high culture existing in Upper Mesopotamia at the end of the last ice age, when the rest of the world was still populated by hunter-gathering communities concerned with day-to-day -day survival and little more. He does. Oh, it's interesting. Well, he pointed out, and yeah, you'd have to listen to the beginning stuff too. But he pointed out that there, he says that there was no ice age. He says, you know, they, they come up with these theories and stuff, and he was saying that it was really just a great flood that made the markings that they think was the Ice Age and stuff. And, you know, it's him like in Graham Hancock and these guys, they, they question all these theories. But the way I see it is that with the Quadrant stuff, yeah, these these theories are all questionable. You know, the, this idea of, of like, you know, they're, they're looking for natural explanations and, and they're calling to question the natural explanations. But now they're creating conspiracy new explanations. But really, when I look at it, it's just we're in the Quadrant Matrix. And, and the quadrant matrix is expressing itself in, in these elaborate ways that where the quadrant ends up being revealed, but, but any other thoughts? No. Concerned with day-to-day -day survival and little more. However, these faceless individuals, known
known to archaeologists as the pre-pottery Neolithic Pipian peoples, created some of the most mesmeric art in the ancient world, which would not be bettered for thousands of years. Collins pointed out that the similarities between this account of Gobekli Tepe's formation and the mythology from the Book of Enoch strike... So like Graham Hancock and these guys, they say that, uh, that there was uh, Atlantean civilization, Lemurian civilization, and, and these ancient civilizations maybe where aliens lived, or maybe that we are part of the aliens that they created or whatever, and then, and then they just populated the earth, and that the and this was like millions of years old, and they, and they look at the Hindu scriptures, and they say like, oh yeah, the, these are the Hindu scriptures just talking about and stuff, but all right, let's look at this one. And the mythology from the Book of Enoch are striking. It is my belief that the trafficking between the suspected ruling elite and the peoples of Upper Mesopotamia is the story found in the Book of Enoch, where beings called Watchers are said to have gone amongst mortal kind, giving them the forbidden arts and sciences of heaven. These were said to have included the use of herbs and plants, metallurgy, the fashioning of weapons, female beautification, and astronomy. Any thoughts? I remember I always was kind of uh, connected to the idea of the Watchers. Like, I remember I, I, I read the Bible, or I saw something in the Bible about the Watchers before high school. And, and I always had like a feeling that there was the Watchers. And, and I remember listening to Jay-Z's song where he talks about the Watchers, the Watchers and stuff. And, and Jay-Z has an album 444 and stuff. And, but I'm just, you know, I think that it's possible that there is Watchers, that we are being watched. What? You know, that, that, that whether it's experiment or whether there, there's these Watchers, they, call, they might be extra dimensional beings, aliens. We might even be the Watchers, you know, us in the future watching ourselves in the past. You know, we don't know what's going on exactly. <clears throat> but, you know, they talk about the Watchers in the Bible and the Enoch and stuff. And it's very possible. Like, any thoughts? No. Sounds pretty crazy, but it... Female beautification and astronomy. Many of the firsts accredited to the early Neolithic world in Upper Mesopotamia. Well, I got this book from the library. This is kind of a mainstream book. Early Neolithic world in Upper Mesopotamia. Similar stories exist in myths and legend of Sumeria, which speak of gods called Anunnaki coming among mortal kind and providing them with the rudiments of civilization. I believe there is strong evidence to suggest that the Watchers and their offspring, the Nephilim, were indeed the shamanic elite that founded the early Neolithic cult centers of Upper Mesopotamia. They are repeatedly referred to in pseudepigraphical literature as birdmen, and we know that the Neolithic period's highly prominent cult of the dead were... Oh, so it's gone. Hey, what's up, bro? What's good? What you up to? Um, not too much. I'm planning to go to a church thing again tonight at seven. It's gonna it's gonna be in Van Nuys though, so it's not too far. At seven, do you want to go? Um, maybe I have to. Um, I'm about to go to meet someone in Van Nuys actually, and then I was gonna go to Johnson again, bring the cat back over there. Okay. So it depends on time. Yeah, it starts at seven. I'm gonna. I'm supposed to pick up uh, Roger at you know my friend Roger. He's gonna go with me at a uh, six thirty. Okay, where are you picking him up from? Um, shoot, it's like Martha Street. I think it's in like Encino or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like right around that. All right, just give me back. All right, bro. Around excarnation and the use of the vulture as a symbol of both astral flight and the transmigration of the soul in death. Clear carvings and depictions of vultures, as well as representations of birdmen, have been found at Gobekli Tepe and the other PPN sites in southeast Turkey and north Syria. Klaus Schmidt agreed that the T-shaped pillars of Gobekli Tepe may represent mythical creatures or even ancient gods. Such speculation supports these Sumerian tablets, which state that agriculture, animal husbandry, and weaving were brought to mankind by ancient Sumerian deities. Gobekli Tepe sits at the heart of places from biblical mythology, and many nearby locations are clearly mentioned in Genesis. Turkey borders northern Iraq, placing it in proximity to the source of the Mesopotamian legends of the Anunnaki, visitors who came from the heavens. The Turkish town of Senlurfa, which is close to Gobekli Tepe, was once known as the city of Ur-Kasdim. Some believe it may be mentioned in the Old Testament as the hometown of the patriarch Abraham. It is fascinating to note that Gobekli Tepe was not lost in the sands of time, but... Any thoughts? No. Tepe was not lost in the sands of time, but deliberately buried, hidden from... Huh? Pretty wild. Time, but deliberately buried, hidden from succeeding generations. But buried by who? 
Klaus Schmidt is correct in believing that the builders of Gobekli Tepe came from elsewhere, where could that have been? They could not have come from the world's oldest known civilization, Sumer, as that culture has been dated back only to 3300 BC, more than 6,000 years too late to have built Gobekli Tepe. Researcher and author Wayne Herschel stated, Gobekli Tepe's layout plan and even its builders' motives are decoded. They had the same secret knowledge, hidden records of their star ancestors matching the same blueprint secret knowledge of a star of their ancestors like the empires of ancient Egypt, the Maya, the Inca, and at Stonehenge. As with structures in ancient Egypt and even carvings of the Dogon tribe in Africa, Herschel found that the layout of the Gobekli... So there's also tetrahedral formations with all this. You know, the, the quadrant stuff is always expressing itself. It's kind of incredible, but there's tetrahedral formations in... In the, in the magnetic structure and everything going throughout the whole world, it's, it's always the four is always being represented. It's kind of crazy. But do you see, it would, this would all seem crazy, but then you see that there is a fourfold pattern behind all of them. So then they come up with the rationalization. Oh, it must have been aliens. Or they come up with another rationalization. No, it wasn't aliens. You guys are just crazy. It was just natural. It's not natural. There's a quadrant behind it all. But their explanation and the other explanation, I don't see any of them as superior. The naturalistic or the supernatural explanation. They're just explanations. But the quadrant is expressing itself. That's all we know. But any thoughts? No. Herschel found that the layout of the Gobekli Tepe is a match for the star systems of Orion and the Pleiades. Strangely enough, the carvings and depictions of bird-headed figures at Gobekli Tepe are also depicted in carvings on the mysterious buried statues on Easter Island in the Pacific. Herschel found more amazing similarities between the two sites. The Thin Arms art style of Easter Island is exactly like the unearthed megaliths at Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. This alone speaks volumes, and if this isn't convincing enough, the two large symbols on the back of the Maoi, Easter Island head statues, are of the same theme and style too, he noted after visiting the island. Herschel found it odd that the statues on Easter Island, which was originally called Rapa Nui, were excavated in 1915 but then reburied. What could have been so shocking for them to have been completely covered up again? After comparing much evidence at Easter Island with other ancient cultures, Herschel concluded, Scholars hate this obvious but impossible to avoid theory, and it's simple. Sentence incomplete in source. Almost all ancient civilizations carry the same star visitor claim, show celestial ships and mostly birdhead deities, built unique megalith structures, and show pieces of the same star map. All ancient civilizations had exactly the same obsession with star visitors, people who are most likely our ancestors, returning to try and teach us who we are and where we come from. But what did our people do? They worshipped them as gods. It does. An interesting theory. They worshipped them as gods. Baalbek. Herschel's theories are astounding because they force us to reconsider our history in a new way. Did our ancestors descend from the heavens? How close to the truth was Herschel? Years of war and terrorism have kept tourists away from the ancient ruins at Baalbek in Lebanon. The site was once known as the Roman city of Heliopolis and is one of the largest and best preserved Roman ruins. Baalbek may also present some of the most significant evidence of prehistoric spaceflight. While attention has been directed mostly to the wondrous Roman towers and columns, the puzzling aspect of Baalbek concerns the massive, multi-ton stone block undergirding the Baalbek Acropolis, larger than the one that is the site of the Parthenon in Athens. Below the Roman Temple of Jupiter, a wonder in itself, lies a wall of some two dozen stone blocks, each weighing 300 tons. In one corner are three massive blocks known as the Trilithar Stone Block, almost 80 feet in length and weighing 1,100 tons. A former curator at Baalbek, Michael Alouf, said of these blocks, In spite of their immense size, they are so accurately placed in position and so carefully joined that it is almost impossible to insert a needle between them. No description will give an exact idea of the bewildering and stupefying effect of these tremendous blocks on the spectator. Since it has become apparent that the gigantic stone blocks under Baalbek far predate Roman Heliopolis, the question arises of how could a primitive people move such weight? Conventional authorities have suggested the blocks were all moved with wooden rollers. Some have even demonstrated how this might be done. Steel rollers, it seems more than 800 tons, will crush wooden rollers, and levers have been used to move a 5,000 to 6,000 pound stone on a concrete platform. Other researchers straining to find an explanation announced that they could move stone blocks by flipping them. They first pried up a two and a half ton block and placed shims under it. By repeating the process, they could flip stones up to about three-fourths of a ton with only four or five men. 
I'm going to make it a little bit faster. Let's see. Alfred asked representatives of Baldwin's Industrial Services, a leading construction company, if they could move the 1,000-ton Baldwin stone and place it at the same height as the Trilithon. Although it is sometimes claimed that modern cranes cannot lift stones as heavy as 800 tons, this is actually incorrect, Alfred discovered. Bob McGrain, the technical director of Baldwin's, confirmed that there were several mobile cranes that could lift and place the 1,000-ton stone on a support structure 20 feet high. Unfortunately, however, these cranes do not have the capability to actually move whilst carrying such loads. Such a crane, fitted with crawler tracks, would require massive ground preparation to move such a block, including a level and sturdy roadway. After hearing other plausible explanations as to how Baldwin might achieve the movement and placement of such a massive stone block, Alfred noted, This is all very interesting and gives us some feel for the scale of the engineering challenge, but there is, of course, one slight problem with the Baldwin scenario, namely that none of this 20th century technology was supposedly available when Baldwin was built. Noting that not one Roman emperor ever claimed credit for the Baldwin temple complex or for the construction of its massive foundations, Alfred said, What we do find instead are legends which suggest that Baldwin was built by superhuman powers in an epoch long before human civilization began. According to local legend, Baldwin was once ruled by the legendary Nimrod, that Sumerian ruler who led the attack on the gods by building the fabled Tower of Babel. Nimrod was said to have been the great-grandson of Utnapishtim, Sumerian equivalent of the biblical Noah. This suggests a sacred aspect to Baalbek. Searching for perhaps a religious meaning in the artifacts at Baalbek, Alfred suggested that the Roman gods are only part of the answer to the sanctity of Baalbek. It does? part of the answer to the sanctity of Baalbek, for the town was in fact named after Baal, the storm god of the Canaanites Phoenicians, and the legends of the god Baal provide numerous fascinating parallels to the gods of the ancient Mesopotamian exploded planet cults. Indeed, my own private research suggests that the Canaanite Phoenician religion could itself be described as an exploded planet cult. Matest Agrest Russian-born ethnologist and mathematician once proposed that the giant stone foundation at Baalbek was at one time used as a launch site for space vehicles and that the destruction of the biblical Sodom and Gomorrah was caused by a nuclear blast. Agrest, who in 1970 became the head of Leningrad University's laboratory and in the early 1990s immigrated to the United States, came to believe that the monuments of early cultures resulted from contact with extraterrestrials. Zechariah Sitkin, in his copious works concerning ancient Sumerian texts, also asserted that the massive stones of Baalbek constituted an antediluvian landing pad for the shuttlecraft of ancient astronauts. Could its builders have been ancient astronauts, or might they have been from some prehistoric civilization? And Baalbek is not the sole site of massive stone blocks whose size and weight would seem to be beyond the ability of primitive people to move and lift. Megalithic ruins of Tijuanaco lie 12 miles south of Lake Titicaca in western Bolivia. Amazingly, the immense stones are joined with modular fittings and complex breach locking levels not found in any other ancient culture. Many of these blocks are joined together with T-shaped metal clamps that were poured into place from a portable forge. Some of these blocks weigh between 100 and 150 tons. One stone weighs about 800 tons. Known variously as the Baalbek of the New World, or an American Stonehenge, Tijuanaco's huge stoneworks are considered by some to be the oldest ruins in the world. In fact, the recent discovery of underwater structures indicates that Tijuanaco was built not as a port on the lake, but prior to Lake Titicaca's existence. Legends in the area say that the city was a gift of the ancient sky gods, but was drowned in a flood long ago. It is also said that at the time that Tijuanaco flourished, the moon was not in its present orbit. Near Tijuanaco are ruins known as the Puma Puku, which is strewn with giant, precisely shaped blocks, many of which appear machine-made. The stones, composed of granite and diorite, are harder than any other material except diamonds. The ruins of both Tijuanaco and Puma Puku lie scattered about as if destroyed by a catastrophic event. Pyramid power. Structures throughout the world give evidence of ancient man's fixation on the heavens and his fascination with harnessing the powers of the earth, none more so than the great pyramids of Egypt, the only survivor... What do you think about that fixation on the heavens? Any thoughts? No. Why is the fixation? And the great pyramids of Egypt, the only survivor of the original seven wonders of the ancient world. Mysteries and questions abound regarding this pyramid, even as to who constructed it. Many geologists now agree that water erosion on the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx indicates that both structures sat under heavy rains, which have not occurred on the Giza Plateau for more than 10,000 years. In other words, the Egyptian civilization, which is dated back to the beginning of the early dynastic period of King Menes, about 3100 BC, could not have built the Great Pyramid and had to have been created much earlier. Though characterized as a burial place for the fourth dynasty pharaoh Cheops, alternately called Khufu, no hieroglyphics adorn the walls of the Great Pyramid, unlike every other ancient Egyptian structure. Furthermore, no evidence of a burial has been found, except one cartouche, which has been called into question as a possible modern addition, reportedly found in 1837 by British Egyptologist Colonel Howard Weiss, who was haunted by suspicions of fabrications as he was desperately in need of justification for his Egyptian expedition expenditures. After viewing evidence from German robotics engineer Rudolf Guntenbrink, British engineer Christopher Dunn believes that the Great Pyramid might be a giant power generator based on harmonic resonance. In 1993, Guntenbrink sent a remote-controlled robot named Upwout II, Upwout, or Wepwowet, was a deity whose name means opener of the ways, probably in the sense of scout, to explore the southern shaft in the Queen's Chamber. The robot traveled up the shaft and revealed what Dunn interpreted as electrical terminals, cables, and even ancient wiring diagrams etched on the walls. The discovery of electrical contacts and wiring inside the Great Pyramid, along with markings that show how to connect them, do not fit anywhere in conventional Egyptology, but confirm the theory first published in my book, The Giza Power Plant, Technologies of Ancient Egypt, in 1998, said Dunn. In his book, Dunn proposed that the Queen's Chamber 
served as a reaction chamber, and the shafts leading to this chamber supplied two chemicals that, when mixed together, created hydrogen. Dunn has pointed out that at the end of the pyramid's southern shaft, in what is now known as Gontenbrink's door, there are two metal pins. While the metal pins have been described as ornaments or door handles by some, no one has explained why ornamental metal pins would have been placed out of sight in small shafts within the pyramid. It is possible that they are actually electrodes. In May 2011, New Scientist magazine published new images of these shafts, including a stone block in one, possibly a door, near the outside of the pyramid. The two small shafts have been described as the last great mystery of the pyramid by Zahi Hawass, Egypt's former minister of state for antiquities affairs. The latest exploration also revealed abnormal hieroglyphs in red paint and odd carvings thought to be marks made by the original builders. If these hieroglyphs could be deciphered, they could help Egyptologists work out why these mysterious shafts were built, said Rod Richardson of the University of Leeds. Christopher Dunn has produced a compelling argument that the Great Pyramid, far from being simply a tomb, was instead a giant power source. There is no immediate explanation for what these red symbols mean, but they are a significant discovery and have the potential to open up an entirely new area of research in gaining an understanding of ancient Egyptian symbolism. When considered along with the metal pins, the symbols provide all the evidence necessary to prove the electrical use of the pins and also give us a roadmap for exploration into the future. Not only did the ancient Egyptians leave us with the physical evidence that proves this to be so, they also provided us with an electrical schematic that showed how the pins were wired. Cosmic War Joseph P. Farrell also believes the pyramids were power sources, and he has even taken Dunn's conclusions a step further. In a series of books, Farrell postulated that in the remote past, the power of the Great Pyramid was used as a weapon in a great cosmic war that encompassed our entire solar system. After calling attention to a huge gouge on Mars... Hey, it does. Well, it's pretty wild theory. Alright, well, and then also, uh... <clears throat> I mean, that's, that, that's about it for that one. I mean, there, there's a ton of stuff from the beginning of that book, but... I can maybe send you a copy if I can find it, but... Okay, but then I want to listen to this thing. It's called The Happy Homes and the Hearts That Make Them. Have you heard of that book? Uh, happy Home in what? Happy Homes and the Hearts That Make Them. Oh, and the Hearts That Make Them. Okay. Homes and the Hearts That Make Them. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Happy Homes and the Hearts That Make Them, or Thrifty People and Why They Thrive. By Samuel Smiles, author of Self-Help, Life of the Stevensons, The Huguenots, Character, Thrift, Duty, etc. Carefully revised with additional matter. By Charles A. Gaskell, A.M. Chicago, U.S. Publishing House, 1883. I'm John Greenman. Preface. Probably no books of the same general type were ever written that have so much interested and inspired to worthy action the various classes to whom they were addressed as have the productions of Samuel Smiles. Though written for the people of Great Britain, and containing numerous paragraphs not at all adapted to American readers, yet the large proportion of matter is of such general application, embracing, as it does, so vast a range of experience and testimony, that they have already reached a large sale, not only among all classes of English-speaking people, but also among the people of continental Europe. Many books of their class have been produced in this country, much of the matter of which has been unscrupulously garbled from the various volumes of Mr. Smiles. It has been our purpose, in the preparation of this book, to place within the reach of our people all of this author's ethical works, including those most recently published, carefully sifting from them such matter as has been thought to be of local or purely Anglican application, or to be least interesting and beneficial to American readers. Mr. Smiles' more lengthy and detailed biographical sketches become tiresome to many. The omission of such, and in some cases the substitution of lessons from the lives of certain of our own countrymen, while not subtracting from its interest with the few, will certainly add greatly to that with which the larger circle of readers peruse it. These changes and additions have made necessary an entirely new index, the laborious preparation of which none can appreciate but those who have had work of this character to do. The marked interest which attaches to Mr. Smiles' productions is chiefly due to his happy use of biography. Readers who admire of extended biographical histories find here groups of the wise and distinguished of Earth I'm going to fast forward this to the various principles the author wishes to inculcate. This method of applying the accumulated experience and testimony of the past to illustrate and enforce principles, although by no means new, is certainly a most effective method of impressing truth. The interest excited by the novel arises solely from our interest in the lives and struggles of men and women. They are interesting biographies, but much more interest should attach to lives actually lived and conquests actually made, provided they are produced with equal care. The home is the epitome of society and government. The application of these principles to every member of the home, the importance of their inculcation in the home where character is chiefly molded, and the value of such lessons in making every home what it may be and should be, has dictated the title, Happy Homes and the Hearts That Make Them. Charles A. Gaskell. End of preface. To one of Happy Homes and the Hearts That Make Them by Samuel Smiles. This LibriVox 
next recording is in the... Before we go on to it, though, Grandpa, um, yeah, you know, there's, like, conspiracy theories about, like, the Titanic, that it was intentionally sunk, and there's all these different theories about stuff, you know, and it all could be true. But any thoughts? No. So, what do you think was the significance of the Titanic? Any thoughts? Do you think that, you know, some people might see it as, like, a, a symbol of, like, capitalism falling, and, you know, there was, like, there was a very stratified boat, and only the rich survived, you know? Because they were the ones who got got to get on the light boats and stuff. Like, any thoughts? Well, see, to me, the basic thing is uh, it was all designed as a way of uh, kind of like a Tower of Babel, a way of of uh, solving all and eliminating all contingencies in life, the unsinkable. The indestructible, it's that aspiration to create, make things happen, create things that are indestructible, that are permanent. And it it shows that if you try to make it happen, then it won't happen, or what? Well, that there's no way to... There's no way to make yourself indestructible. You can't figure out a way of making yourself indestructible. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Achilles. Remember, Achilles wanted to be indestructible, but then he got hit in his Achilles tendon because his mom d- dipped him into the into the river. Yeah, yeah. There's always some vulnerabilities to the might and the power of our own hands. Yeah, that's right. No. Public domain. Recording by John Greenman. Chapter one. The art of living, or making the most. It's like trying to save yourself, you you destroy yourself. Yeah. Rather than being like in the flow where you transcend yourself or whatever. Yeah, that's that's my understanding of it. It's, it's kind of like the idea of like the Trojan condom. Yeah. Of life. Everyone is the son of his own work. Cervantes. The art of living deserves a place among the fine arts. Like literature, it may be ranked with the humanities. It is the art of turning the means of living to the best account, of making the best of everything. It is the art of extracting from life its highest enjoyment, and through it, of reaching its highest results. To live happily, the exercise of no small degree of art is required. Like poetry and painting, the art of living comes chiefly by nature, but all can cultivate and develop it. It can be fostered by parents and teachers and perfected by self-culture. Without intelligence, it cannot exist. Happiness is not like a large and beautiful gem, so uncommon and rare that all search for it is vain, all efforts to obtain it hopeless. But it consists of a series of smaller and commoner gems, grouped and set together, forming a pleasing and graceful whole. Happiness consists in the enjoyment of little pleasures scattered along the common path of life, which in the eager search for some great and exciting joy, we are apt to overlook. It finds delight in the performance of common duties, faithfully and honorably fulfilled. The art of living is abundantly exemplified in actual life, Take two men of equal means, one of whom knows the art of living and the other not. The one has the seeing eye and the intelligent mind. Nature is ever new to him and full of beauty. He can live in the present, rehearse the past, or anticipate the glory of the future. With him, life has a deep meaning and requires the performance of duties which are satisfactory to his conscience and are therefore pleasurable. He improves himself, acts upon his age, Helps to elevate the depressed clock. Hey, thus. What, what do you think so That's far? A good description. It's a good description of, of um, being in the flow. And is active being in every in, good work. In the state of trust. Never tired. But my, my question is, I wonder if the guy's like an SJ and, you know, he might be very, like, order-organized 
oriented and stuff. But I like the I like the Shiva worshippers too. You know, I like the guys who were like, yo, fuck the system, like you know, because this guy kind of talks down about the guys who. Yeah, I understand. There's some guys who are like standing outside of their room, you know, out of their house, and they have their shirts off, and they're drinking beers, and they're kind of like, you know, screw everything and robbing banks and stuff, whatever. And and yeah, I understand that that's kind of you know kind of screwed up in ways, but also I don't want to judge them. I don't know their story. You know, any thoughts? No. And it's like I, I actually kind of like those guys because the thing is like they're they're the anti they're the anti entropic aspect and. I like the anti-entropic because there needs to be both, and the you know the the system's smug and there's people who are at the top and they're smug and they're they're, they're caught up and and they're, they're feeling a little bit invulnerable like the Titanic you know and I want to see and so that, obviously it doesn't help in some cases but but sometimes you know you'd like to see the anti-entropic you'd want to see the Shiva worshippers kind of fuck shit up you know robbing the banks and you mean the, you mean the entropic not the yeah, yeah the entropic yeah the entropic guys. You know the the guys who are like, yeah, you know they don't they don't comb their hair. Like this guy talks about people not combing their hair, and maybe it's like the NTs and stuff. You know they're they're not being obedient. They're not trying to fit in. You know, and and they, even even they're being anti-obedient. But sometimes that's a good thing. You know that that keeps things spicy. That keeps people on their seats on the on the edge of their seats, and it keeps things like, and if everyone's just like walking around in, in a fairy land of you know fairy tale. Uh, there's that movie, uh, like the the housewives, something like the the Stepford Wives or whatever. Like, but they turn out to be robots. Like, if everyone's like, yeah, yeah, you know, being like robots and shit, that's that's not the flow for sure. But in also, you know, maybe the disobedience is closer to the flow. But I like to see the entropic. I like to see the Shiva worshippers. I like the ghouls and the goblins. You know, any thoughts? No. What do you think? Any thoughts? No. I mean, yeah, but you also, you know, people could be like, oh, they're just inferior by nature. But also, what about the, you know, maybe it's their personality type and, and, and there needs to be the different types. And also, you know, maybe it's also just, we don't know, we don't want to judge them. They were brought up in poverty, maybe. They were brought up in abuse, I don't know. And then they take it out on the world. But you know what? The the system set the, allowed for that to happen. And now the system pays for it. And if the system, you know, and, and, and the way I see it too is, a virus in the system makes everything more healthy. It makes it forces everybody to get stronger. You know, little 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 contamination and stuff is could could be beneficial. It keeps things spicy. It keeps things, you know, growing and stuff and evolving. Like any thoughts? No. What do you think? Any thoughts? No. No. I mean, it's 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 like that Japanese idea too of like I forget I forget the name for it, but it's like. Having imperfection is also good, and it's like I like to see it because it keep you know it keeps it keeps people out of the matrix. If people are too content, then they're stuck in the matrix. You know, it, it's almost like it's it's an idea of like the guy who it's sad. You know, the, the guy has a wife and his wife cheats on him. That's a sad thing, but also there's a higher higher aspect to that. It's helping him break out of his attachment to the illusion that he can be satisfied in the matrix, in the special relationship, in the illusion of, of his dream self. You know. Any thoughts? No. Any thoughts? No. His mind is never weary. He goes through life joyfully, helping others to its enjoyment. Intelligence ever expanding gives him every day fresh insight into men and things. He lays down his life full of honor and blessing, and his greatest monument is the good deeds he has done and the beneficent example he has set before his fellow creatures. The other has comparatively little pleasure in life. He has scarcely reached manhood ere he has exhausted his enjoyments. Money has done everything that it could for him, yet he feels life to be vacant and cheerless. Traveling does him no good because for him, history has no meaning. He is only alive to the impositions of innkeepers and couriers, and the disagreeableness of traveling for days amidst great mountains, among peasants and sheep, cramped up, and he looks into them because other people do. When he grows old, and has run the round of fashionable dissipations, and there is nothing left which he can relish, life becomes a masquerade, in which he recognizes only knaves, hypocrites, and flatterers. Though he does not enjoy life, yet he is terrified to leave it. 
Then the curtain falls. With all his wealth, life has been to him a failure. Hey, Thos? No. I mean, yeah, there's, there's people who are... See, doing, I, just, huh? what? I just see that as a, a, a way of his seeing himself in the world. Or what I call the software, his, his uh, mode of seeing everything. Like, like, you know, there's people who are jaded and they're assholes and stuff. And yeah, I, I can have a higher perspective and I, and I can be like, you know, flourishing and, and doing, you know, not, not complaining and, and just doing, you know, be, being very synergistic and stuff, but not in like a conservative manner, but in an authentic, beautiful manner where I can also see the beauty of the, of the ugly and the, you know, and I can have understanding for the, the poor and the oppressed and the, you know, and, and not like a fake, like, not like a conservative asshole, you know, like. Oh, I'm so. Oh, I need to look, look at him. He's not. He hasn't washed today. He needs to be uh, sterilized so that we can have better breeds in this in this anthropic anthropic world. You know, any thoughts? No. No. But yeah, people can be jaded and stuff. But there's also like you know, there's 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 true authentic beings. And, and the thing is like when, when your 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 way of looking at things is so shallow. It's so like it's so one dimensional because you you look at it through the energy. And, 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 you, and you're looking at it through the naturalistic manner of like, okay, we came from the energy and stuff. But that's why I like Jim Mars and stuff because he's looking at things and he's also seeing that there could be other ways of looking at it. And even that there might be both ways are true because we're in the matrix. And and that allows for, you know, not just like – I think your ways is more susceptible to like conservatism and like, yes, yeah, so let's, let's, let's uh, sterilize the, the ones who are acting bad. But no, in, in this way of looking at it, it's like – no, you're, 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 you're a character, you're, you're, listen, you're a character in the matrix and you're, and you're, you're a player in it. And if you want to play a good role and the matrix will allow it for you and he'll make you a hero. Like what happened with me with the quadrant model. And, and it we makes, it makes a beautiful, a, a beautiful play. And it's not just about like, Oh, let's, let's create synergy for the, for the, you know, for the kingdom of heaven stuff. No. There, there's dialectics going on and there's plays going on and it really might not even matter but what does matter is that there's a story going on and there's beauty that you can see out of the story like any work of art like any thoughts well your assessment of me is is your assessment no but but no but your, your ideas are good too and it's a part of the matrix but... no they're no they're not they're inferior no yeah, that's what you drew. You were just saying. No, I was saying it's one-dimensional. It's missing the the complexities of the matrix. Yeah, it's it's shallow. It's one-dimensional. It's inferior. And no, that's fine. not necessarily inferior. It's just the way it is. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's one just, it's, it's one vantage point. Yeah, it's shallow and one-dimensional and you know and maybe naive. I shouldn't have used the word shallow because it has too much of a connotation. But I would say that it's that you're 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 entrapped in a funnel. Where you're like, I how come? How come you want? How come you want to talk to me if 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 I'm so trapped? No, no, no. I, 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 you you're not interested in my way of thinking anymore. No, no, no. So I, you're I'm, wasting I'm interested my in time. And no, you're no, wasting, no, because because you have good wasting, ideas with it. But all I'm saying is that no, you're wasting you're wasting my time, and I'm wasting no, your time. No, no, no that's I don't have anything to offer. No. I don't have anything to offer that's, you. That's you not true. That's not true. That's not true. Man, that's it. Yeah, you got it all. You, you have it all. Well, I might not. Out. I not be I right. I might to... not be right either. But I'm just trying to get deeper oh, understanding. No, no, no. You're, you're, you're right. You're, you're right. You're right. You got it all figured out. Yeah. You don't. You don't need my perspective anymore. No, it, it's helpful. I right, ready. Without no, which life cannot be enjoyed. I, I'm not interested. If, if you're not interested in my way of thinking, I'm not. Uh, that's all I no, have. No, I am interested offer. in your way of thinking. No, you're not. You dis you discount it. It's all. You, well, it's no, all no, discounted. but why? Why it's when you listen? Why, why when you listen to Jim Mars, you say like, "Oh, I doubt it." I doubt it. Like why? Because I'm shallow. And yeah, doesn't. It's possible though. Maybe you're right though. I don't know, but I right. To life, but no reflection, appreciation, taste, culture. 
Above all, the seeing eye and the feeling heart are indispensable. With these, the humblest lot may be made blessed. Labor and toil may... I mean, you, you originally were the one who were saying like, oh, I believe that there's aliens and stuff like that. You know, you, you always had like an open mind and stuff. You believe that people can fly and stuff, but already... ...associated with the highest thoughts and the purest tastes. The lot of labor may thus become elevated and ennobled. Montaigne observes that all moral philosophy is as applicable to a vulgar and private life as to the most splendid. Every man carries the entire form of the human condition within him. Even in material comfort, good taste is the real economist as well as an enhancer of joy. Scarcely have you passed the doorstep of your friend's house when you can detect whether taste presides within it or not. There is an air of neatness, order, arrangement, grace, and refinement that gives a thrill of pleasure, though you cannot define it or... Hey, boss. No. Do you think that there's an air of smugness in this guy who's right, writing this? Or do you think that he's, you know, he's, he's getting at something? Yeah, yeah it's, it's sometimes, it, you know, you do want to... Because the reason why I get a little bit offended when I listen to it is because, you know... I was always a little bit messy, but it, but in, in my mind, it's because I'm working so much on my stuff, so I don't really think about all that stuff, but I think if I had an SJ or someone who is more focused on the external stuff, then he can help, you know, clean it up, and that's why it's good to have a cleaning lady and stuff like I have now, you know, but before I had a cleaning lady, yeah, my place did be really messy because I'm working so much on my inner stuff, and they said the same thing about Thomas Jefferson, like they said he was very messy, or, you know, that he would, he would not dress up, you know, very, very well and stuff because... You know, it, it takes effort to do all that. And he's working so much on his geometry and on his books and stuff. You know, so, but any thoughts? No. So is there a smugness? But I mean, he might be right. It might be beneficial like you talked about. I mean, you might have a personality that's more into it or maybe just the way you're brought up, you know, maybe working on the farm. I don't know, but but you maybe more organizational aspect. But, you know, you, you're very into the idea of synergy and stuff. And, you know, it might, it might reflect something about the person. It, that that's beneficial and stuff but at the same time like i don't want to judge people who are messy you know he does talk about like wives and stuff are beneficial to have to clean up and everything but it's like i don't want to judge somebody because he didn't comb his hair like einstein didn't comb his hair but i mean at the same time that could be self-confirmatory you're calling attention to yourself but you know i don't know i'm just trying to wonder is is he right now being judgmental and in, in like a little bit smug or what's he getting at any thoughts no, I have no idea what he's getting at. Explain how it is. There is a flower in the window, or a picture against the wall that marks the home of taste. A bird sings at the windowsill, books lie about, and the furniture, though common, is tidy, suitable, and it may be even elegant. The art of living extends to all the economies of the household. It selects wholesome food and serves it with taste. There is no profusion. The fare may be very humble, but it has a savor about it. Everything is so clean and neat. The water so sparkles in the glass that you do not desire richer viands or a more exciting beverage. Look into another house, and you will see profusion enough without either taste or order. The expenditure is larger, and yet you do not feel at home there. The atmosphere seems to be full of discomfort. Books, hats, shawls, and stockings in course of repair are strewed about. Two or three chairs are loaded with goods. The rooms are in confusion. No matter how much money is spent, it does not mend matters. Taste is wanting, for the manager of the household has not yet learned the art of living. You see the same contrast in cottage life. The lot of poverty is sweetened by taste. It selects the healthiest, most open neighborhood, where the air is pure and the streets are clean. It does? No. So, I mean, yeah, you might be getting that something, okay? I, I can I can have appreciation for somebody who's done like maybe if I didn't discover the quadrant model I would be more susceptible to that type of stuff I don't know maybe not though but because I discovered the quadrant model all my efforts always on that but I can understand that maybe you know like somebody can really get involved in studying what is the the right uh like I never had any taste in terms of like what's fashionable because maybe I'm just completely in not in. You know, see, what I'm thinking is maybe he's a little bit too much in the Matrix world where, where you know, you get involved in, okay, that that's the right fashionable chair to put right there and this right here. And it's too much in the world. But at the same time, I can also have an appreciation of somebody who's done all the research and he studied the cars and he studied what, what you know, the, the different styles and stuff. And now he has a he has an appreciation for that and he has a he has a lot of knowledge about it. 
and he can now knows what to wear and in, in, in these settings and stuff because he's he's done the research. Like any thoughts? No. Like you can have appreciation for that, and I don't want to judge anybody, and that, that can increase your like I can write if I was writing a novel, then I could put that in my novel. You know, I can add that that knowledge and stuff. I want to have knowledge about everything, but at the same time though. Like, I don't want to, I'm wondering if he's being judgmental. Like, oh yeah, I go into a person's house and I'm like, like, I don't go into people's houses and I don't even notice anything because I'm an intuitive. Like, I don't even notice what, what's on his walls and stuff. But I guess, you know, some people do. And maybe that's an important aspect of reality. You know, I don't want to judge them. You know, because, because, you know, they, they have an appreciation for that dimension, that domain of existence. And maybe I could even cultivate that dimension. Like, any thoughts? But like, okay, you, you know, he knows what, what, what to put on the wall, what, what painting, what painting is appropriate, what, what will add to the feng shui, like studying feng shui. I want to study that stuff. I want to study feng shui and, and what, what chair would go good here because you could understand the, the geometries of space and stuff that, that might widen my spectrum of awareness, but at the same time, it could even be narrowing your spectrum of awareness if you're too caught up in it, too judgmental. What do you think? Any thoughts? Yeah, certainly possible. You see at a glance by the sanded doorstep and the window panes without a speck. Perhaps blooming roses or geraniums shining through them. That the tenant within, however poor, knows the art of making the best of his lot. How different from the foul cottage dwellings you see elsewhere, with the dirty children playing in the gutters, the slattern-like women lounging by the doorstep, and the air of sullen poverty that seems to pervade the place. Any thoughts of that? I mean, I can see that being a little bit judgmental, but also at the same time, yeah, maybe that, that maybe it does represent that those people could be working on themselves better. Like, the, like with me though, like I'm focusing so much on my on my studies and stuff. I understand why I don't have geraniums in my room and stuff, and I don't have all that extra stuff that might attract women, you know, geraniums and and nice paintings on my walls and stuff. So, but but I'm working so much on this, but I can see like if, if I wasn't working on something like this, I mean, but even if I wasn't working on this, I would still be wanting to understand the nature of existence and studying a lot. Like Thomas Jefferson was also an INTP and he's doing all that stuff. And so, I, but I don't want to judge people who do that geraniums and has all that special stuff, but I don't want to judge the poor people who are on this, you know, doing that stuff. Maybe they're, they're even better off. Like, but but at the same time, I can understand that there are some people who might be poor and they're just doing it because they're lazy or whatever. I don't know, and they're not doing all that focused energy on intellectual pursuits as as I've been doing. You know, maybe that's just just lazy. Like any thoughts? But but so like possible. But but I like I like I said I like the entropic stuff because I you know the people who think who are all into like oh. Oh, look at the geraniums. Look at the beauty. And, and I sometimes want to just see that place get, get bulldozed because the, like you talked about, this idea of contentment, that they're stuck in the matrix. They're content and, and, and everything's so beautiful. And sometimes you want to see them blindsided, you know, in the side of the face with something, you know, and I want to see, and I want to see the poor people take over their street, you know, just, just to get them a little bit frustrated out of their contentment and out of their judgmentalness. If they, if that, if they are judgmental, but at the same time, I don't want to be judgmental towards them because there could be some people who, you know, again, if they're, if they're doing it as a, as a, as a way of inquiry, as a way of studying, okay. Like I had appreciation for when I was at the Hindu temple and they knew what flowers should go where, okay, this flower should go near this idol. And this should have these flowers over here because these flowers represent this and this flower represents this and the feng shui. And, and I have appreciation for that. And then, and then like, okay, what kind of paint can you use? Cause that's going to expand my knowledge of things. I could write a book. I could add that stuff to the book, you know, any thoughts? No. So it's like, and yet the weekly income in the former home may be no greater, perhaps even less than in the other. How is it that of two men working in the same field or in the same shop, one is merry as a lark. Always cheerful, well-clad, and as clean as his work will allow him to be. Comes out on Sunday mornings in his best suit to go to church with his family. Is never without a penny in his purse, and has something besides in the savings bank. Is a reader of books and a subscriber to a newspaper. Besides taking in some literary journal for family reading. While the other man, with equal or even superior weekly wages, comes to work in the mornings sour and sad. Is always full of grumbling, is badly clad and badly shod 
is never seen out of his house on Sundays till about midday, when he appears in his shirt sleeves, his face unwashed, his hair unkempt, his eyes bleared and bloodshot, his children left to run about the gutters with no one apparently to care for them, is always at his last coin, except on Saturday night, and then he has a long score of borrowings to repay. It does. Sounds judgmental. Saved, yeah, that's how I was getting. I was getting the impression of judgmental, but, but it is. You know, he might be. He might be getting at something. You know, sometimes maybe you. It is beneficial to have a gratitude attitude, and you know, a, a, an inquiring mind, and a little bit more positivity. And and you know, people who are grumbling and stuff, and 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 you know, a lot of people don't want to be around it and stuff. And and you know, I can appreciate someone who's cultivated understanding for cars and understanding for how to. The, the, the flowers to put in the house I can appreciate that and you know they say that that's more you know like like women tend to be really good with that stuff but I mean that that's a way that you can uh, that, that can improve the environment but again there's different types of people some people are you know good for Im improving the beauty of the environment and that's an important aspect of reality and that can help everybody out but there's also some people like Thomas Jefferson who were you know walking around their slippers but they were spending so much time in their mind that they didn't have time to, to, to worry so much about their appearance, you know? Any thoughts? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess there's you know, there's a lot of variables. Lives literally from hand to mouth. Reads none, thinks none, but only toils, eats, drinks. Like, I, like I'm thinking about like some, some of my, like, even like African-American friends who, who like know everything about shoes. And like, I don't know anything about shoes and I'm not able to tell, but... But you know, maybe they grew up in poverty, and, and shoes help, is a status symbol for them. And it, but and they can study that, and they can understand all the different variables in them, and, and the varieties, and the different textures, and they get an appreciation for that. And I, and I, I don't want to judge them for that. You know, any thoughts? No. And sleeps. Why is it that there is so remarkable a difference between these two men? Simply for this reason. The one has the intelligence and the art to extract joy and happiness from life, to be happy himself, and to make those about him happy, whereas the other has not cultivated his intelligence and knows nothing whatever of the art of either making himself or his family happy. With the one, life is a scene of loving, helping, and sympathizing, of carefulness, forethought, and calculation, of reflection, action, and duty. With the other, it is only a rough scramble for meat and drink, Duty is not thought of. Reflection is banished. Prudent forethought is never for a moment entertained. But look to the result. The former is... Any thoughts? Yeah, well, see, see again, he's, he's developing a strategy and a formula rather than looking at the difference in their mode of seeing themselves in life and others. Mm -hmm. Any like I'm, I'm thinking of like Vishnu versus Shiva worshippers right now, and neither of them are the right way to do it. But neither of them, you know, but but I, I would actually sometimes prefer to be around a Shiva worshipper because the Vishnu worshipper might be so preservatory, like conservative, and he's trying to everything's beautiful and and a little bit smug, judgmental. But the Shiva worshipper, I'm thinking of like black people at like a party, like you know dancing, you know shaking their the girls shaking their butts, the and and you know kind of like being anti-conformity, anti-moral, and like you know smoking weed and. I almost like that better because it's like a little bit more free and it's like, okay, forget all the, the orders and stuff. And but also it's, it's detrimental and it, it like, cause I never done drugs. I don't like, but I have appreciation for them because I'm seeing that at least they're breaking out of the conformity and that's a little bit closer to the flow than maybe the guy who's too conservative and in conformity and, and smug about it and judgmental about it. Okay. Any thoughts? So it's like I, I sometimes want to I, I I want the the girls shaking their butts and you know to go out there and, and and like piss off everybody because break them out of the matrix a little more. Respected by his fellow workmen and beloved by his family, he is an example of well-being and well-doing to all who are within reach of his influence. Whereas the other is as unreflective and miserable as nature will allow him to be. He is shunned by good men. His family are afraid at the sound of his footsteps. His wife, perhaps, trembling at his approach. He dies without having any regrets behind him, except, it may be, on the part of his family, who are left to be maintained by the charity of the public, or by the pittance doled out by friends and relatives. For these reasons, it is worth every man's while to...
Study the important art of living happily. Any thoughts? Well, uh, to study the art or, st or study the strategy. See, he's, again, he's, he's seeing it as a strategy rather than as a mode of seeing and being. Yeah, well, like, like I don't want to judge people because, like, I know in Mike's case, you know, he's, he's talking about, like, the, the family hates him. Like, his family runs from him. But in my case, it was, it was a tragic situation. A shootaway machine, and I would have been big with the basketball. You don't know about it, but I would have been huge with it, you know? And, and with, how do you how do you know how do you know I don't know about? Uh, but no, but but n n not, nobody really knows unless they were to really. Maybe Dad knows because he had he, he saw me. Maybe, you know. But most people wouldn't know unless they they had the videos and stuff. But the thing is, like, and you, you don't know how good I was, and you don't know how much things fell apart with the shootaway and everything. But and 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 I know Dad knows. But anyways, what I'm getting at is this. It was a tragic situation, and then and then a lot of misery came out of it. And then you could blame me and go, oh, that guy's just, oh, <clears throat> what a bullshitter. But the thing is, like, I don't want to judge people because I don't know their story. I don't know what happened. I don't know what, what situation they were brought up in. And and I and, and I have appreciation for the entropic aspect of reality. Any thoughts? No. That's enough for today. All right. All right, thanks, everyone.